Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Tom Hartman Program. This is Richard R.J. Escow sitting in for Tom. It is a Friday, the end of another action-packed week. We'll get to that in a sec in a second. I, uh, by the way, if you don't know me, I'm the host of the Zero Hour on We Act Radio. You can go to this is the zero hour.com and find out more about that. Uh, also a writer and uh, I try to stay out of trouble and I don't do very well at that final task. Now, uh, as I said, we had, of course, an action packed week this week. What other kind of week have we been having lately except an action packed week? So of course, we're going to get to some of the news stories. Uh, but first, you know, I don't know if you feel the way I do, but it seems to me that since Donald Trump got elected, the news cycle has accelerated to a frenetic pace. It was always a fast-paced culture that we live in, but the news stories are breaking so often, so fast, so furious, in this case, literally furious when it comes to Trump and his white nationalist followers, that sometimes I have to wonder... Uh, whether we can even keep pace with it, whether we can even absorb all the information that's being thrown our way. So before we get to the news uh, events of recent cycles, I want to step out of uh, the pace of current events and look backwards in history for uh, a feature I'm going to call the mystery leftist. Uh, this is going to be a pop quiz for listeners of the Tom Hartman program. I'm going to offer two or three quotes from a mystery troublemaker of past history and give you a few minutes to tell me who you think it might be. Obviously, we're not taking calls in this segment but you can tweet it at us or do whatever you want or just say it in your mind and perhaps we'll hear it. Okay, Mystery Leftist said this, uh, labor is the great source from which nearly all, if not all, human comforts and necessities are drawn. Now, while you ponder that quote, bear in mind that labor itself, meaning organized labor, labor unions, are once again rising in popularity. You know, there was a time in this country not so long ago when most working or a large number of working people 
belong to labor unions. Now, outside of the uh, government sector, uh, only about 7% of the working population belongs to a union. That number was much higher in the 1960s, and wages were much higher in the 1960s. Benefits were improving in the 1960s. Inequality was much lower. Those things are very much related. Uh, now, labor uh, came in for some unpopularity, at, especially uh, after the 1990s when Democrats uh, worked very hard to dis distance themselves from labor and seemed to be echoing the kind of rhetoric of the Republicans. In fact, definitely did echo the rhetoric of the Republicans in saying that um, that labor was a quote-unquote special interest. Well, I'm sorry. The interests of a majority of Americans, a vast majority of Americans, who are wage earners and working people uh, in their everyday lives is not a special interest. That's us as a people. A special interest is a small minority that tries to manipulate the system for their own selfish benefit. So who is this mystery leftist of which I speak? Second quote, labor is prior to and independent of capital. Capital is only the fruit of labor and could never have existed if labor had not first existed. Labor is the superior of capital and deserves much higher consideration. Wow, who is this commie? I'll get to that in another minute. But while we talk about the need for organized labor in this country, let us remember that uh, during the prior administration, there was a time when Democrats had majorities in both houses of Congress and conceivably could have passed the Employee Free Choice Act. They chose not to do so. That is, in my mind, a horrendous oversight. Now, uh, let us go to um, the third quote from our mystery troublemaker. Third quote goes as followers, follows, if at any time all labor should cease, uh, at the end of a single year, there could scarcely be one human being alive. All would have perished for want of substance. Now, uh, again, uh, who is our mystery leftist? Well, let's think about the way we treat working people in this country, particularly if they are immigrants. There was a story in the paper uh, recently about uh, working uh, people in the Texas area who did not come to this country with the proper documentation. The headline was, if they deport all of us, who will rebuild, quote-unquote, undocumented workers could be the key to Texas recovery. The premise of this article, which was, you know, on the one hand, kind of liberal-minded because it talked about the plight of undocumented workers in the Houston area, but the whole premise of it was we need undocumented workers because nobody else will do this work, uh, and therefore we should not keep deporting uh, undocumented workers until Houston is rebuilt. In fact, this article, if I can find it here, it quotes uh, the head of uh, the Houston Contractors Association saying if they would relax the rules, meaning, of course, stop deporting people, Honestly, that would be great. We could use it. That's Jeffrey Nielsen, executive vice president of the Houston Contractors Association. Uh, he said every member of the association, even before Harvey, Hurricane Harvey, was grappling with a shortage of workers. Now they're really short 
of workers. He went on to say, the truth is there are not a lot of people jumping up and down to do civil construction work in Texas. It's hot and these jobs are pouring concrete or worse, hot or worse, hot asphalt. That's the reality of it. We need more people than ever. So basically, the whole premise of this article seems to be uh, well, we've got to stop deporting people until they've done the heavy lifting and hard work to rebuild Houston. And when that is done, we'll kick them out. Now, the same attitude was present in an article about Saratoga, New York. Uh, headline in the Albany Times Union, track worker, uh, I'm sorry, the headline is uh, uh, ICE returns, that's the immigration uh, enforcers, ICE returns to Saratoga, arresting eight from Mexico. Uh, now, why did that this suddenly start to happen again? Apparently, there had been a moratorium. Nobody had been arrested uh, and facing deportation as an undocumented worker in Saratoga for a while. Why did it start again? Because racetrack season was over. So, again, disposable workers, working people who uh, helped Saratoga profit from the racing season, and as soon as it was over, kick them out. Now they want workers to rebuild Houston and then kick them out. That is a heart, heartless, ruthless, horrible way to look at working people. It is inhuman. It is immoral. It is labor serving the interests of capital rather than the other way around. Do I sound like a communist? Do I sound like a subversive? Does my mystery leftist sound like a communist? Does he sound like a subversive? Does he sound like an un-American person who every school child in this country should condemn and be taught to condemn with every breath? Perhaps. His name? Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you know, there was a time in this country not so long ago when politicians of both parties were uh, were willing and able to say that working people in this country deserve a fair shake. Take a look sometime at the 1956 party platform for the Republican Party. That's right, Dwight D. Eisenhower's Republican Party. That party platform celebrates working people. It does so. Now, I don't agree with uh, the Eisenhower Republicans' uh, economic uh, ideology, but even they were more than willing, and of course they're moderate by today's Republican standards, but they were more than willing, for example, to brag about the fact that during President Eisenhower's first administration, uh, a million more people joined unions. That was bragged about in the Republican Party platform. Can you imagine uh, a, a Democrat of today? Now, the Democratic Party is changing, and we're going to be talking about that on this show. But can you imagine a Democrat of the last 20 years bragging that union membership went up while they were president? No. But it's time for that to start happening again. If Dwight D. Eisenhower can brag about it, Democrats should most certainly brag about it. Now, the Dwight D. Eisenhower Republican Party platform also bragged that 2 million people were added to Social Security. That's right. Social Security was expanded during Dwight D. Eisenhower's first administration. We need a party that will fight for those things today, that will fight to increase the number of working people who belong to unions, that will fight for better wages and benefits for working people. 
that will fight to get more people on Social Security or to and better yet in today's day and age, uh, or I should say even better, to uh, increase Social Security's benefits, which are inadequate to meet people's needs. You know, when you compare Social Security benefits in this country to comparable programs in other developed countries, we're close to the bottom of the list. That should be unacceptable. And to those of us uh, like my mystery troublemaker, uh, President Abraham Lincoln, I suspect it would be absolutely unacceptable. So as we uh, prepare to go to our first break, think about this. If it was okay for Abraham Lincoln to say it, why isn't it okay for the po political leaders of today to say it? If it was okay for Dwight D. Eisenhower to say it, why is it considered extreme for uh, Democrats of today to say it? And then consider the wisdom as well as, as the heroism of the Democrats we will be talking about later in this show who signed on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. We will be, talk we be talking about that a lot, not only because it is a good bill, but because it is a sign, a portent, a symbol of what government can and should do for its people. Democrats shouldn't be embarrassed about the power of government to make people's lives better. They should be proud of it. We will be right back after this. I'm Richard R.J. Eskow sitting in for Tom Hartman. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'll be, we'll be right back after this. This is Richard R.J. Eskow sitting in for Tom. Hey, so we, uh, this is Richard R.J. Eskow. We're back sitting in for Tom, and we, I'm going to take a real quick call. You think I have time for a real quick call? All right, so uh, caller uh, Jim just... Just a heads up before we start talking, man, this is going to be quick, and uh, we are, uh, but uh, I want your thoughts on Abraham Lincoln. Jim, well, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking that's an excellent example and uh, brings historical perspective to uh, what uh, has happened in labor and what's happened to our economy, because there's a rather narrow view that uh, the United States was founded basically on a capital perspective, and uh, and Lincoln's uh, illustrating that uh, no, going way back into one of our greatest presidents, our greatest president, that uh, there's a great deal of concern for uh, for labor. Yeah, I, I I think that's well said, and I agree with that. I think you can look at American history as being the American Revolution. We didn't really have the left-right paradigm uh, when the American the revolution took place. So that I've been reading a lot about the American Revolution lately. That was more of a social equality fight. And there was a tremendous shift in really in culture and society in the United States, new United States and Europe around the idea that all people are equal, that, you know, the aristocracy was not uh, a reflection of God's will for humanity. And that 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 was a social revolution of a massive order. Now, I think we're getting to the point where uh in the last 150 years, it's been a social and economic revolution that needs to take place on an ongoing basis so that everybody has a role to play 
in society. Now, both of these struggles, as we talked about earlier, they're, they're ongoing and they're interconnected. But, you know, when uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson talked about a revolution every 20 years, now he talked about watering the tree of liberty with the blood of martyrs. I think history has moved beyond that. I think we've developed democratic institutions that if we use them and we demand that they be used, will do the job for us without violence. I think we can be nonviolent now in our revolutions. But I think the idea that periodically we need to refresh the tree of liberty with a real revolutionary spirit towards both social equality and economic equality, I think that's the spirit we need. And I think we need it more than ever right now, because, look, we're not going to reverse climate change without overthrowing the dominance of, of, of global predatory capitalism. That's just a fact. And we're not going to really save the planet without it. We're not going to heal the divisions in society that are, have uh, young uh, black boys and girls shot down on the street uh, or grown black men and women shot down in the street. We're not going to stop that without a social revolution of equal magnitude. It's a matter of life and death. And it is our calling and our mission as people who want a better society to address these crises and to address them with something that I would describe as a revolutionary spirit. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about what the revolutionary spirit ought to look like as we move forward with the Tom Hartman show. But I'll tell you one thing, it's going to have to be something we all really believe in. Our Elected officials aren't going to do it for us. We're going to have to do it for them. This is Richard R.J. Eskow sitting in for Tom Hartman. We will be right back. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. This is Richard R.J. Eskow sitting in for Tom Hartman, and we will be right back after this in a few minutes. When was the last time you looked forward to sitting at your desk all day? Since getting my new X chair, not only am I enjoying the time spent on my desk much more than ever, but I can't believe how much more productive I'm being. My X chair is unbelievably stylish. And thanks to all the ways that you can personalize it, it literally molds itself to my body. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. And because I don't need to have to keep taking breaks or stretch my back, getting more done in a day than ever before. If you spend a lot of time in your office chair every day, then you need to try the X chair. In fact, here's a terrific deal just for my listeners. The makers of X chair want you to feel the X chair difference for yourself. So if you go to xchairtom.com right now, that's the letter X, the word chair, THOM.com, XChairTom.com. Not only will they knock $100 off the price, but they'll even throw in a free footrest if you use the promo code TOM, T H O M. So just go to XChairTom.com right now. I love my X Chair, and you will too. So check out XChairTom.com. And we are back on the air. This is Richard R.J. Eskow sitting in for Tom. And joining me now is a good friend and one of the nation's. Uh, best experts in the area of social insurance. Nancy J. Altman is the president of Social Security Works. She has uh, encyclopedic knowledge on this topic, <laughs> and uh, she has recently written a piece that I liked very much uh, regarding uh, Bernie Sanders and the new Medicare for All bill. Uh, and the thesis of that piece, which I think is absolutely 
absolutely correct is that this bill is the uh, logical uh, conclusion or next step for the New Deal. So first of all, Nancy, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Secondly, how much did I mangle the thesis of your uh, I think you're exactly right, but it's not, you started to say final and it's not. It's right. the next step. I took People, it back. I know, yeah. because Franklin Roosevelt and the others around him were visionaries and they had, we have not come close to achieving their vision, but one of their elements of that vision was universal um, um, high quality health care for everyone. And uh, and so when we talk about universal and high quality, I mean, those those are to me two compelling words. And there are two words that cannot look. I, I, I uh, let me preface my comment by saying I, I want to defend the Affordable Care Act. But I think there are two words that cannot be applied to the status quo. One, because we know that that at least 20 million people in this country, more actually, are not covered under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, so it's not universal. Secondly, high quality. You know, I, I've written about this a lot. The fact that the actuaries tell us that the average family of four with "quote unquote" good employer coverage will pay, on average, uh, uh, almost eleven thousand dollars a year out of pocket costs. That is not affordable. That that is correct. And but let me say one more thing about the vision of the New Deal, and then go back to the affor the Affordable Care or the Obamacare or called the Affordable Care Act. Um, part of their vision was not just universal, high-quality health care, but sick pay, because their attitude was, you get sick, of course you need treatment, but you're also not getting an income, and we are not close yet to having universal paid sick leave for every worker. Yeah, and the other thing that's striking, I'm glad that you brought that up, because in, in both cases— we, as a country, you know, we love to talk about American exceptionalism and how we're number one at this and um, and that, but we lag behind virtually every developed country. I mentioned earlier in the show that we lag behind most developed countries in terms of the value of our Social Security benefits, for example, but we also were the only one without uh, national nationally guaranteed uh, health insurance. And we're we're pretty much at the bottom when it comes to sick leave, family leave to care for a sick one, vacation leave, uh, the things that we who like to be number one aren't number one at, which also happen to be, we, we like to brag that we're a family values country, but they also happen to be the things that allow fam families to, to lead a wholesome life together. Absolutely. And that's why the, the Democrats really detoured away from the principles underlying the New Deal and really fighting for working people by having government provide, because government can do it most efficiently, most fairly, most well, providing um, these, these benefits through Social Security, through uh, Medicare for all. Um, we, we are latecomers and all this. And these are not new ideas that there should be paid sick leave, there should be paid family leave. This was something they were talking about in the 1930s. Um, yeah, so absolutely. No, and, and by the way, I want to let our listeners know that uh, you know, we're talking with Nancy J. Altman, president of Social Security Works, and Nancy and I will take some calls on this subject in in the second segment. No, I think that's actually right. And on my, I, I've been beating this drum about, you know, we're number one. And, uh, <laughs> and I was pleased to see at the press conference rolling out this uh, 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 bill that, you know, I've gotten people mad, my 
my Democratic friends, as as President Obama used to say, I made some of them mad because I was critical of Cory Obama, uh, Cory Booker on um, on Wall Street and Obama's positions on Wall Street too. He actually criticized Obama from the right at one point about in 2012. Um, so uh, I I've I've said that this bill, the Medicare for All Act. Uh, has shifted uh, the, the art of the possible in politics. And when you get me to compliment Cory Booker, <laughs> I know we've shifted the art of the possible, but I thought Cory Booker made a great point, speaking to my pet peeve, in the press conference when he said, we're always going around saying we're number one, <laughs> yet we're way at the bottom at, at, at this issue that matters most, this life and death issue. Don't you think he was exactly right? Exactly right. You know, no one in other countries, you, don't, you can't find people in Canada or France or Britain or any other country saying, oh, we want the American system. We want to spend 18% of our GDP uh, instead of 8% on healthcare. We want to have many, we want to have a high out-of-pocket cost. We want to have all this paperwork filling out insurance forms. Nobody wants that. But this is one. And in fact, Social Security is the same thing, that we learn, there are things to be learned from other countries. And Social Security was one of them. We were latecomers to that. We are very late comers to Medicare for all, but we will reach it, and then the rest of then we can go back to saying we're exceptional. So let's talk. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so let's talk a little bit about um, about how the framers of the New Deal saw what we call Medicare for all. Um, that was always part of the vision, wasn't it? Uh, absolutely. In fact, we have narrowed the concept of Social Security. They saw Social Security as economic security. In fact, one of the um, founders, the first commissioner of Social Security, said that around the world it's become known as the good life. It was something we introduced in the language and other countries picked it up. And they understood it to be, you cannot have economic security if you don't have a healthy childhood. You cannot have economic security if you don't have an education. You can't have economic security if you don't have guaranteed employment. And you certainly can't have economic security if you're one illness away from bankruptcy. And so it was, they almost proposed it as part of the Social Security Act, and President Roosevelt was planning to do it, and then World War II intervened. You know, we've talked about this before, Nancy Altman, but this is the first time I've really kind of glommed onto this in a different way. Uh, the fact that, it, and when you think about it, the name Social Security when you, we've heard it all our lives. We have an association with it. It's for when you get disabled. It's for when you, are, you know, got older and shouldn't have to work anymore. So, in the context of what it is, wage replacement—that's what we picture. Uh, but actually, the phrase itself, those two words, social security, are very all-encompassing of what it means to know that you can uh, be secure throughout your life. Uh, in a society that believes in mutual sustenance. Am I putting... President it, it, Roosevelt, in fact, used the phrase frequently, cradle to grave. Mm -hmm. That's how he understood social security, economic security, that, that you have it from the moment you're born to the moment you die. And for that, you need all of the things we're talking about, including universal health insurance. And they, as I say, they, they, um, his, President Roosevelt had a commission that he put together six months before he introduced legislation. It was a committee that was interagency. 
and there were various working groups, and there was one on universal health insurance, and they came up, they developed material and studied it and report, and President Roosevelt decided at the end that it was just too much of a lift to have all of this because it was much more than even just what we think of as Social Security. It was maternal and child health. They had a lot of welfare programs. There were a variety of pieces of this. But he immediately, after Social Security was enacted, which he described as a cornerstone on which to build, called for a conference on universal health insurance, had all kinds of studies. For the first time, we did, the country did health surveys to see the health of people, all laying the groundwork, and talked about running on the issue, perhaps in 1936, perhaps in 1940, and then before he, he really pushed it, um, Pearl Harbor happened, and we were entered into World War II. But even then, he, gave, he sent a budget message to Congress in January of 1942, so just a month after Pearl Harbor. And in it, he said, we've got to uh, mobilize for the war effort, but we also have, our, have we're a wealthy enough country that we can make sure we have healthy people. And we and he was asking for universal health insurance, even in 1942. And he was talking about the four freedoms, which in, around that period of time, exactly. which talked about freedom from want and so on. Uh, now, I, I'll remind people, if anybody wants to talk about this, give us a call. Uh, should I give the number? Should I? 202-808-9925 is the number I see up there. Uh, and Nancy Altman and I will be back talking more about... Uh, about the Medi Medicare for All Act, but I do want to, before we go, just quickly, uh, before we go to break, qu quickly say that Social Security then, to me, is really the vision of the kind of society we ought to be. The phrase Social Security, uh, it, it would be good if people, when they hear it in the future, envision a better kind of society than the one we are living in today. So why don't we go to break? Nancy Altman and I will be back uh, after this. I am Richard R.J. Escow, at, sitting in for Tom Hartman, and we shall return. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is Richard R.J. Eskow sitting in for Tom, and we will be right back. All right, so we are back. I'm Richard R.J. Eskow, and we are here with Nancy J. Altman. We are talking about uh, Social Security. So, uh, you know, I, we have a couple minutes Nancy, uh, we might want to mention on this topic uh, Tom Paine. Yeah, um, it, it, tell us a little bit about Tom Paine, because I think there's a through line here. That's right. We've been talking about how Medicare for All is um, the next step in the New Deal. But really, these concepts of cradle-to-grave protection go back to our founding. And as you say, Tom Paine, the pamphleteer from our revolutionary days, wrote— um, a, a um, short book called Agrarian Justice. And in it, he proposed essentially Social Security. <clears throat> Excuse me. He um, proposed old age 
pensions paid for with an estate tax, which is the perfect way to pay for it. Plus, he went beyond Social Security and said, you know, when you're, of course, they didn't go to college then, but when you you're um, reach adulthood, you're starting a family, you're starting, you shouldn't start with debt. And his uh, concept was everyone who turned 21 should get a lump, should get assets, should get a lump of money to start out. Wouldn't that be wonderful today if people at 21 emerged out of college or vocational school or wherever they were at that point in their lives, not only debt-free, but with money in their bank accounts? Yeah, and I, I, you know, also, by the way, just so our, our listeners understand, agrarian justice that, you know, the agrarian economy that we lived in then was really as well, almost like would be to talk about working people's justice today. That was the kind of working class of the day was the agrarian class. So he was really saying there should be justice for everybody, regardless of social position. And yeah, I'm fascinated by that, you know, lump sum uh, everybody gets at birth. It's related to the idea that's being debated now about a universal basic income, you know, which I have feelings about, but in the notion that we should be exploring what it means to be part of a collaborative society. Okay, so we we are now back. Is that right? I'm still talking. Okay, did we ever stop talking? Okay, because the, the light went on. Okay, so um, this, is, this is a fascinating, mysterious environment here, I have to say. <laughs> By the way, lights go on and off, cameras go go on and on. And meanwhile, we're talking about a book that was written, what, 240 years ago. I'll tell you, if Tom Paine were sitting in this chair right now, greatest uh, rhetorician and, and, and polemicist in American history, I think he'd be even more flummoxed uh, than I am today. But we are going to be back with Nancy J. Altman after the break. We're going to be talking more about Social Security, the program, Social Security, the the concept, and most of all about Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All Act. So please stick with us. And again, if you want to give us a call and talk about it, we will be here to talk with you. We are taking your calls. So uh, with that, I guess we can go ahead and take a break, right? All right. This is Richard R.J. Escal sitting in for Tom Hartman. If you want to know more about my program, The Zero Hour, you can go to patreon.com slash the zero hour or this is the zero hour.com. Again, we are talking with Nancy Altman, president of Social Security Works, about Social Security, the concept, Social Security, the program, a little bit. And most of all, especially now, about the Medicare for All Act that was introduced in the Senate today by Bernie Sanders with 16, count them, 16 Democratic co-sponsors. Nancy, the last time Bernie introduced a Medicare for All Act was 2013, and the number of co-sponsors he had was give or take zero. (laughs) So something's changing, right? And it's not just the quantity of co-sponsors, which is 16, 
that original co-sponsors on his Medicare for All Act. It's actually the quality. Everyone you can think of who is being talked about as a possible 2020 um, Democratic presidential candidate is on the Medicare for All bill. And for a good reason. It is the logical next step. It makes sense. Um, We're talking on the first part about the history. Medicare was supposed to be a first step to Medicare for All. The people who put it together, um, working with Lyndon Johnson, that was their concept. They covered seniors in 1965, people with disabilities in 1972. They went and covered the most expensive parts of the population, the parts that would be the hardest to cover. The rest is easy. Covering children is a snap um, because children, all you need really is preventive care for most children. So we've done the hard part and we've had this little hiatus. It should have been done, you know, 1972, we covered people with disabilities and now we're at 2017. But thank goodness the Democrats have have uh, returned to their roots and they have Medicare for all. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting. We did take on the toughest population first, the one with the least coverage, the one with the most expensive costs. And the next most expensive population are the 55s to 65, um, who, if you look at the at, at, at the uh, stats, uh, are quite, ex- you know, expenses start really climbing in that age group. Now, Bernie's bill uh, would phase in uh, coverage and uh, initially, it's, you know, it happens over time, which I think is smart. And the 55s and up are, I think, among the first. If I think not, they are the first. The first and night and children, what we used to call Medi-Kids. That's right. right. I mean, the interesting thing about having 55, uh, under current law, your earliest stage of eligibility for Medicaid, Medicare is age 65. The, and if you take 55 to 65 and take them out of private sector health insurance and put them in Medicare, both sides win because they are the most expensive part right. of private health insurance. So those premiums go down and they go into Medicare and they are the least expensive part of Medicare. So those premiums go down. So everybody wins. Right. And as long as, we, you know, before we go to break, and again, I want to remind people that we're going to be taking calls with Nancy uh, after we come back from this uh, ne- next break. But, uh, I, you know, I, I used to work, some people know this, I used to work doing actuarial and analytical work for the health insurance industry, believe it or not, the dark side. <laughs> and it absolutely works out. It makes arithmetic sense. It makes economic sense to do this. And by the way, speaking of everybody winning, uh, other countries uh, aren't burdened with the runaway health care costs that our country is. And American businesses are going to find out to their pleasant surprise that they're a lot more competitive when they're not having to shoulder the costs and the administrative effort that it takes to administer an employee benefits plan, the effort that goes into it, the staffing you have to do in your human resources department, it's just a huge burden for America. The capitalists of America unite, is my call, (laughs) behind the Medicare for All Act. So again, we're we're going to take a break. And when we come back, Nancy and I are going to take your calls on on this issue of the Medicare for All Act. So why don't we uh, why don't we say that we're going to uh, have a book report after this break, uh, and then when we come back from that and, and and our advertisers and our affiliates, Nancy and I will be talking about the Medicare for All Act with you. I'm Richard R. J. Eskow, sitting in for Tom Hart. Yeah. 
listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. And we will be right back after this. This is Richard R.J. Escal sitting in for Tom Hartman. Please don't go away. What I like about Harry's is their amazingly high-quality shave. It's smooth and close, just how a shave should be. And Harry's passes savings on to you by selling directly over the Internet. No more frustrating drugstore trips. Harry's knows some of you guys might be skeptical of trying out a new razor brand. So instead of just telling you, Harry's wants to prove to you that you'll love their stuff with their free trial. They made this special free trial with everything you'd need to evaluate Harry's. It's customizable. You can try it for free. It's a $13 value. Someone from the Harry's team even checks in to see how your trial is going. It's 100% risk-free, guaranteed. You can even call and cancel or get a refund whenever you want. Why not give Harry's a shot and judge for yourself? Head over to harrys.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, to get it now. Get started with your Harry's free trial offer today. All you cover is just a few bucks in shipping. To get your free trial set, including a blade, handle, shave gel, and travel blade cover, go to harrys.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's Harry's with an S, harrys.com slash Tom. Don't wait. Get started with Harry's today. And we are back on the Tom Harpin Show. This is Richard R.J. Escal sitting in for Tom. We are here with Nancy Altman, president of Social Security Works. And as I mentioned, we were going to be taking some calls from you, our listeners, on uh, what Nancy and I have been talking about. Social Security, uh, history of Social Security, history of the New Deal, how the Medicare for All Act is the logical next step in the evolution of the New Deal and the society that it reinforces and seeks to create. So uh, with that, uh, Nancy, if it's okay with you, I thought we would uh, take a couple of these Absolutely. calls. Um, let's see. Um, how about we, uh, Dale in, um, in Harmony, North Carolina, nice town name, by the way, uh, wants to talk about both topics, Social Security and Medicare for all. Dale, you're on the air. Okay, uh Social Security for all is the only thing that's going to work with a nightmare of health problems that's going to be coming on to humans there that's already started with diabetes, MS, cancers, and all that stuff. There's no insurance companies out there that's going to insure this stuff and cover it. It's only going to be able to be covered under a, a single-payer system there because the system we've got is, is totally not working, and the people that needs health care cannot afford it. And that is running conclusive with exactly what is going on on our dairy farm uh, due to the high sulfur level that was put in uh, byproduct feeds that were put in our feeds that caused a catastrophic disaster on our dairy farms. And even the Farm Service Agency said it was a man-made disaster. And I see the same symptoms that the cows have that's in the humans out there with the uh, uh, inflammation, all kinds of swelling, and uh, even the head pressing uh, with your brain swelling. And there's nobody out there willing to talk about this subject out there. But it's it's in the animals, it's in the humans and all. And uh, there's uh, going to be a catastrophic amount of health care that's going to have to be done. And there's no way that the insurance companies is going to cover this out there because... Uh, I've done talk to some insurance people about it, and they say this is guaranteed damage, and uh, it's in the food system there. And 
What the Food and Drug Administration is going to do to straighten it up, I do not know because we have went round and round with them on this, and the government is not talking on this situation. That is how serious it is. Yeah, well, uh, you know, a couple thoughts about that. First of all, Dale, you know, uh, terrible that people have to go through this. Uh, I'm so sorry for the folks in your community that are struggling with this. But secondly, um, I, I think there are a number of issues that this raises. And Nancy, you know, what's your thoughts on this, too? Number one is when you have a system that is dependent on, uh, on private sector health insurance, then you're always going to have the incentives in the wrong place. The incentives, and I know I worked in that business for years, the incentives, whether it's health insurance, whether it's liability insurance, product liability insurance, in this case, uh, feed, uh, uh, or, or an animal uh, husbandry product that was poisonous to animals and humans, you know, you're always going to have, first of all, the incentive not to pay for something you've accepted a premium to insure, and secondly, to kind of selectively pick and choose, we call it in the healthcare business, uh, ad adverse selection, you know, avoid adverse selection. Cherry picking was the industry term to, to, to make sure the healthy people join your insurance plan, but the unhealthy people do not. And, you know, the Affordable Care Act, I would say, was a noble effort to work within the confines of the private sector health insurance system, but it's too complex, it's too cumbersome, it's too expensive, and it really uh, takes accountability away from the people. Uh, so uh, maybe you have some thoughts on that? I, I do. I, first of all, I, I share it. I want to echo what um, Richard said about our hearts really go out to the people you were, were talking about, Dale. Um, and, but, but the basic underlying point is exactly right. First of all, health care is and should be a right, not a privilege. So it should not depend on where you work or where you live or whether you have a pre-existing condition or anything else. The Medicare, which covers um, the most expensive parts of the population, actually are, is more efficient and has much lower administrative costs than private insurance, and certainly than for-profit private insurance. Um, Medicare, the most efficient insurance is ones that cover as broad a risk pool as possible, get everybody in, and has, as Richard said, no adverse selection, the ability to say, oh, I'm sick now, I'm going to go in for the insurance. Well, the only entity in our society that can insure, require everyone to participate at the moment you are born is... Um, the federal government, and as a and the other thing that's beneficial about having the government sponsor this, you don't have high-paid CEOs who are taking big fat salaries out of people's premiums. The um, civil servants um, are, are hardworking people paying um, paying for this. You don't have advertising costs. You don't have marketing. You don't have all that kind of overhead that you find in our system, but you don't find in systems around the world. So there's no question, there's no surprise that we pay 18% of our gross domestic product, our collective wealth, on um, health care, and most other countries pay around 8%. Right, and, 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 you know, when we talk about the Social Security Society, 
That's the phrase I'm going to call. It's a little circular there because socialism, but social security society. Also, you don't have a system where the insurance company is trying to manipulate you. These, the people that Dale is talking about should not have to go through all they have to go through. He shouldn't have to call all these different exactly. companies and agencies like he's had to do. They should know it's taken care of. And, and people who have to go through the bureaucracy, people say government's a bureaucracy. Try to find out what's covered under your health insurance plan. Then you'll see your private corporate health insurance plan. Then you'll see what a bureaucracy is. You know what I want to do if, uh, real quickly, because I want to take one more one call last before guy. we go. At the moment of birth, generally, you usually apply for your Social Security card. You get your Social Security card. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you get your Medicare card? You walk in any doctor's office, you just hand the Medicare card, and everything gets taken care of. I like that vision. We're going to take one call. We're going to make it pretty quick. We've got Dewana and what looks like Warner Robbins. George, Georgia, uh, let me make sure. Okay. Why? Okay. Dewana, you're on the air. Thank you. Uh, yes, my son passed away last year uh, at the age of 38 of a massive heart attack. He could not get insurance. He worked for a company that uh, would only give him part-time for a year, which was, you know, 39 hours a week. He never got the 40 40th hour to give him full benefits. And just um, a month after he was supposed to get his full uh, full benefits, he passed away. He was fighting for health care, mm. and he knew he needed it. And he had gone to the emergency room several times, and they would just say, go to your doctor. Mm. When he would go to the doctor, uh, you know, I would pay for it, but they would only just give him blood pressure medication and a statin and a water pill and let him go. They never operated on him because he didn't have health insurance. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and Dewana, I am so sorry for so your loss. I, I know, uh, I know that there is no greater grief that a, a human being can experience than that I can imagine than that of a parent who's lost their child. And it's, you know, uh, you, maybe I'll close with some thoughts when we're done, Nancy, but your thoughts. Well, absolutely, I, I share that. And and the idea, and um, in fact, President Obama talked about this with his own mother, that when you have a life-threatening illness, whatever it is, to have to worry about can you pay for the coverage is horrible. It is, it is immoral. And this is really a moral issue as well as an economic issue. And we've been talking about how much uh, money we would save as a society and as individuals if we had Medicare for all. But there's a morality to it as well. And you and your son should not have had to worry about what kind of care you can get and how much you can afford. That should be all of us collectively. Yeah, and, and I guess I'll just close by saying, Nancy, that uh, I, I agree with everything you've said. And I also think this is a story that illustrates how uh, the system we have now can literally kill. You know, we talk about economics, we talk about policy, but we are talking about life and death. And so, you know, let's not be clever and pretend that we're talking about ponies or 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 if we're Republicans, uh, say cutesy artificial things about the power of the free market. Well, you know, when I hear a story like that, you know, my like Dewan is my answer is, you know, 
honestly, what the hell is wrong with you people? You know, we are trying to save lives here. You know, one guy did a reasonable projection that the Affordable Care Act, if it's not repealed, will save uh, 320,000 lives, maybe going forward in the next 20 years. But that this bill or something like it, universe, truly universal coverage could save another 180,000 lives in the same period. Uh, I'm I'm guesstimating on the numbers, but that was roughly it. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of human lives. It's not a game. It's life and death. So when you listen to Nancy Altman and read her work on this stuff, when you listen to me, read my work on this stuff, listen to Tom, just remember, we're talking about humanity. We're talking about lives, and there's nothing more important. Nancy Altman, thanks so much for joining us, and we will be back after this. I'm Richard R.J. Eskow, sitting in for Tom Hartman. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. This is Richard R.J. Eskow sitting in for Tom Hartman, and we will be back shortly. Stick around. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the program. This is Richard R.J. Eskow sitting in for Tom. You can find my program, The Zero Hour, at Patreon.com slash The Zero Hour or at thisisthezerohour.com. We are taking your calls this hour, so come on in. We've been talking about Social Security and as a concept and a philosophy as well as uh, a bill. We've been talking about Bernie Sanders and the Medicare for All Act. We've been talking about lots of stuff, including my uh, starting off the show with a very socialistic-sounding quote from Abraham Lincoln about the value of labor. We talked a lot about that. So, hey, uh, call us about anything you want to call about. And before I take a couple more calls, a little news item from the other day. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, who some of you may still have difficulty absorbing this fact, uh, he is the president of the United States. I know my brain wants to reject that idea uh, like a bad transplant, but nevertheless, he is the president of the United States, and President Trump uh, called upon uh, the Congress to repeal the estate tax. Now, let's put that in a little context. The estate tax is already not levied on estates below $5.49 million. Uh, so, in other words, unless uh, someone who is a millionaire several times over dies. To all ex- ex- intents and purposes, we have no estate tax in this country. Uh, the, the estate tax used to be considerably more meaningful, but it is gone. Uh, as a net result, uh, wealthy, very wealthy individuals who have done nothing to earn their money uh, pay virtually no taxes on it. Uh, they do pay no taxes up to the first five and a half million whereas somebody uh, working, a middle-class person working for a living is likely to pay taxes, will certainly pay payroll taxes on the very first dollar. So uh, that is where we are now, but even this generous posture towards the wealthy is not good enough for the oligarchs uh, Mr. Trump represents, who are his true constituency. So uh, Donald Trump is calling to repeal it. Uh, the Center for, on Budget and Policy Priorities uh, ran the numbers. Uh, we already know 
that roughly one estate and 1,000 is covered by uh, the current tax. But we also know that that includes some billionaire estates, which is why there are all sorts of tricks for evading the, the current estate tax altogether. We should be closing those loopholes instead of eliminating the tax. We should be lowering that number a little bit. Uh, a little bit, okay? Uh, we can talk about how much. But uh, they ran the numbers, for example, in Alabama, one family in a thousand uh, will uh, will pay this tax. Uh, sometimes it goes up to two families in a thousand, like in Maryland. But it is a very, very low number indeed. And yet, you know, Democrats will look at this, some of my Democratic friends will look at this and say, hey, uh, I can't believe that people were, working people were dumb enough to vote for this guy, <laughs> to which my admonition to Democrats is, how did you lose to this guy? Uh, Democrats, we have to tighten our game and do better. Now let's talk uh, to some of our callers. I am uh, pondering now uh, who who to, let's just take them in order. Uh, David from uh, is uh, in Pittsburgh, California, <clears throat> and he wants to talk about Bernie's bill. Uh, David, you're on the air. Callers, I am... Uh, who, who uh, you know, David, you got to turn off your radio. Uh, David from, uh, is uh, in Pittsburgh, California. <clears throat> David, listen to your phone and not your radio. Okay, that's not going to work. Okay, let's go to the next. Okay, uh, Pete in Espanola, New Mexico. Pete, you're on hey, the air. Thanks for taking my call. Okay? You bet. I'd like to talk about uh, Medicare. I'm a Medicare recipient. Uh, I had to work my last two years at an employer because I couldn't have, I had to work so that I could get Medicare. My, uh, I was on over transplant list for two years. That was the worst two years of my life. Mm. Anyway, what I'd like to say is if we're going to have Medicare for all, we're going to have to pay for it, of course. And the only way to get pay for it is to tax the rich. I mean, come on, let's let's face it. They're the only ones that have money, and that's the only place to get it. So let's go ahead and go back to like it was in the 1950s and have 96% uh, tax on the wealth. Sure, I agree, I agree with that. That's well, 93 to be... Uh to, let's 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 not get greedy here, uh, Peter. It was just ninety three. Uh, good point. Okay, you know, a couple thoughts about that, Pete. Number one, uh, uh, the bill specifies uh, where the money comes from. There is an, indeed a wealth tax that's part of it. Uh, number two, there's also a tax on the biggest Wall Street a tax T A S, not a tax, not attacking a T A X, a tax on the biggest Wall Street. Banks, although I'm okay with attacking the biggest Wall Street banks, too. And um, <clears throat> there are a couple other uh, sources for this as well, getting the offshore profits that corporations aren't paying taxes on, getting uh, doing one-time tax on them. So <clears throat> there are a number of sources. But yeah, in principle, w w the wealthy in this country uh, are getting a tremendous deal. I've written about what I call the Elvis Index, because during the 1950s, Elvis Presley's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, who, who it turns out was not a colonel and was not named Tom Parker, but called himself Colonel Tom Parker, uh, said uh, to uh, the press, he said, I consider it my patriotic duty to keep Elvis in the 90% tax bracket. 
Well, good for him, and I consider it my patriotic duty to see that there is, if not a 90% tax bracket, something a lot more uh, reasonable and closer to the 1950s than what we have today. You know, when Rick Perry and people like that, Rick Perry, when he was running for president, used to talk about, I want to go back to the America that I grew up in in the 1950s. My answer was always, great, Rick, let's start with taxes. And we are back for the last time. This is Richard RJS sitting in for Tom Hartman. And I, I love the show today. And I love the fact that thanks to Bernie Sanders and his 16 co-sponsors, we're talking about something progressive. We're talking about something that can really help most everybody in this country. We are talking about Medicare for all. We're talking about the concept of a secure society and social security. We're talking about progressive ideas and not just complaining about the insanity of Donald Trump or the venality of the Republican Party. We're talking about good stuff. And you know what? That's what we should be doing. We should be looking to tomorrow. Look, you know, everybody's been talking about what happened. And I want to talk about what happens next. I want to talk about Medicare for all. I want to talk about ending our involvement in needless wars. I want to talk about a society where economic equality is not destroying the middle class and dooming 43 or 44 million Americans into poverty. I want to talk about every family having sick leave, every, every parent being able to stay home with a sick child, every family knowing it can take at least one little vacation a year the way we used to do back in the 60s, even if it's just to the mountains nearby. I want to talk about a country that's a humane and decent place to live where everybody has a vote, where everybody has a voice, where everybody can live the kind of fulfilling life they were meant to live, where everybody can get the college education they want if they want it. And that's the society we're going to be fighting for. Thanks for letting me sit in. This is Richard R.J. Heskow for Tom Hartman. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.